Surreal Politics, Stage 1, Episode 5. Artificially credulous, I'm the host of this production, Meg Island. You can give us a call if you would like to be on the production today. That number is 217-688-1433. And the more you talk, the less I have to, so please do give us a call. Today is April 17th, 2023 is the current year. Good to be with you all. You know, um, there's been a lot of talk in the news lately about artificial intelligence. You can't be a regular news consumer and not hear about this on a pretty routine basis these days, you might have gathered. And, you know, personally, I've been struggling to get caught up with how dramatically the technology has changed in the last three years. One might expect the pace of change to only increase uh, from here, and as much as I share the concerns of people like Elon Musk, I'm afraid no brakes have yet been developed for this particular model of runaway train. I made to recall a line from the movie The Matrix, in which Neo remarks about the phenomenon of com- uh, programs writing other programs. And of course, this is not so far from our current state of affairs. If one thinks about computers as I tend to, a program creating another program tends to make a great deal more sense than a computer creating a visual representation that could pass for a photograph based only on a text prompt or an audio recording that sounds like the spoken word of an actual human being. The implications in all instances are dire at present and sure to disrupt our lives in ways we cannot possibly foresee going forward. I specifically recall when I was younger that I was told that a computer will never create a painting, or write a symphony. Because all computers are capable of doing is following the instructions of a human being. But once computers are creating their own instructions, I suppose we find ourselves in uncharted territory, don't we? I read a book not so long ago by a guy named Michael Woldrich, and it was titled A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence, What It Is, Where We Are, and Where We Are Going. And you can get that, by the way, from our partners, Books A Million or Thrift Books, uh, and if you order through the links in today's show description for Stage 1, Episode 5, it's realpolitics.com. We will get a, uh, we'll get a cut of the sale if you do. It was hardly the most interesting thing I've read, and being a history of artificial intelligence published in 2021, it's hardly up to speed on all the recent developments, but it did provide an interesting framework to think about the systems and their course of development. Chess provides a great way to think about this. I won't trouble you with the math, but chess is a game in which calculating the mathematical probability of events is possible to do, at least in theory. Part of what makes chess interesting is that these calculations exceed human capacity, and as of the publication of Woldrich's book, it likewise exceeded the capacity of computer technology. A computer can still be programmed to play chess, and many are, but it can't run through every possible move to the end of the game after every move to calculate the next one. If you play chess with a computer today, it is likely a chess engine that has been given some exceedingly complex instructions by chess experts rather than a computer developing its own strategy by going through all the possible moves. But computers just keep on getting faster, you might have noticed, and as a consequence, things that were once seen as impossible are today simply time-consuming, and things that are now time-consuming are quickly becoming instantaneous frivolities, which we take for granted. What's probably more interesting than that feeds into a line of inquiry which I've been working on, and I'll be straight with you, like I still struggle to articulate this, frankly, I'm still putting it together. To oversimplify, I've done a lot of thinking about how people think. We've talked about the subject of influence and persuasion, sales specifically and elsewhere, propaganda. Decoding the human mind, well, you know, that might make training a computer to think look easy by comparison. 
but these tasks are hardly distant in their scope. If you want a computer to emulate human intelligence, one must know quite a bit about the thing being replicated, of course. Early AI models described by Woldrich are very simple, a complex series of if-then-else statements, which, if you're not a computer programmer, I'll clarify, are basically exactly what they sound like. You tell a computer if such a variable is of such a value, then do such a thing, or else do something different. You can think of this pretty easily if you've ever used a predictive text app when sending a text message. You type a letter, and then a few word suggestions show up. You type another letter, and then the suggestions change based on the context. I used to run an app called SwiftKey on my phone and gave it access to my Gmail account and social media profiles so it could learn how I write, and it saved me tens of thousands of taps on my smartphone. It would occasionally remind me of these saved keystrokes and invite me to promote the app on social media by sharing these stats. You can think of the way it works um, as the computer having, it's more than this, but we'll say 36 if statements, right? Based on the 26 letters of the alphabet and the numbers 0 through 9. If the first letter is A, check this ranked list of words starting with A and then show the three uh, most used words beginning with that letter. Else, go to the next letter. If the first letter is B, show the three most used words beginning with B. Else, go to the next letter, etc. You get the idea. It's linear. It systematically works through a list of commands and, in the end, emits light, sound, or motion accordingly. How you go from this to computers creating the sort of things we see in AI today, I'm afraid, is beyond the scope of my comprehension, and I expect always will be. People I'd like to think I have a better grasp of. Your mind doesn't think, your mind doesn't work quite like a computer, but the goal of AI is to organize these linear checklists more like your mind in what are called neural networks. Rather than checking off one possibility at a time linearly, your mind makes many different connections all at once and draws what we call meaning from associations. You see a cat and your, and your brain quickly checks categories of information. It understands that a cat is not a plant and so it stops searching for information in that category. It's an animal. It's moving, so it isn't dead. Or better yet, you see a dead cat and now you have to go through your most important category, things that cause death and determine if there is a threat to your safety in the area, this sort of thing. Categories are so tremendously important, and there are political implications here that we should touch on before we continue. We cannot get by without heuristics. We never really know anything for certain, as we are so often reminded by people who claim falsely that there is no truth. We make rapid assessments of everything according to categories, and once a bit of data is categorized as something, all the subsequent thought processes are based on that assumption. You've heard people saying, um, you've heard the saying, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And that's part of the phenomenon, right? You might have heard that one sex or another decides within some exceedingly short period of time if they'll have sex with a person or not. And of course, that's only partly true. They don't decide if they will, but they can rule somebody out very quickly as soon as they come across a deal breaker, right? They get put into one of any number of categories that do not include this feature, and that is the end of that. So it's worth keeping in mind, you know, that if you get yourself put into the category of villain or opponent or adverse interest group, do not expect to influence people by whom you are so categorized. Another book I read that was helpful in thinking about these things was James Gleick's. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's G-L-E-I-C-K. James Gleick's The Information, A History, A Theory, A Flood, published in 2011. And I'll note once again that this book, too, you can get from our partners Thrift Books or Books A Million, and I'll also point out that if you do it through our links, we'll get the sale. But more importantly, 
Thrift Books, at the time of this writing, has used uh, has used hardcovers of that book for as little as four dollars and eighty nine cents, which is almost half the price of the paperback at Amazon. So worth pointing out. What is information? How do we communicate and interpret the world around us? That's an interesting subject, I'd say. In the first chapter of the book, Glick goes on at some length about what he calls African talking drums. African languages, like a lot of languages, such as Chinese, are tonal. In English, we convey meaning through tone mostly in the way of like emotional content, or for the most notable example, to indicate that we are asking a question as opposed to making a statement. But in other languages, tone doesn't just change the application of the word, it changes the word entirely. So these drums, you have a high, a middle, and a low tone uh, in the drums, and this sort of approximates the tones used in their spoken word. And since the spoken word in these African languages is sort of primitive in its own right, you can convey a great deal of meaning with just the tones themselves. If the spoken language was more complex, you know, these three tones would equal a lot more words, obviously, and it wouldn't be nearly so conducive to talking through drums. But to do this, you've got to sort of organize your words in a certain way to accomplish this, right? As Gleek puts it, they couldn't just say corpse, but would elaborate, which lies on its back on clods of earth. Instead of don't be afraid, they would say, bring your heart down out of your mouth, your heart out of your mouth, get it back down from there. And this seems kind of silly at first, but it's actually pretty clever if you think about it. This is error correction, is what it's called when you're talking about data. If you just say corpse, you would basically just have one or two tones, and that would not convey much meaning, right? It could be confused for any number of things. You have to add context to get by on three tones. Computers, you may know, use only two signals, on or off, one or zero, binary. So computers do this all the time. So I don't mean to give these primitive tribes too much credit, but it's also worth thinking about. This actually happened before most Morse code was developed. As the book continues, he talks about substantially more advanced forms of communication, data compression and encryption specifically, which are pretty interesting, not just for their utility, but for how much they have in common and what this says about how we think. Take this example. I'll include the text in the show description. I'm about to put this on the, on the screen for the, uh, for the video audience. Let me stop that transition thing. But uh, the audience uh, in the audio podcast, uh, I'm just going to read this text to you and you'll sort of get the idea, I think. According to research at Cambridge University, I'm sorry, according to a researcher at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word are. The only important thing is that the first letter, the first and last letter be at the right place. The rest can be a total mess and you could still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a whole, okay? And so you might have gathered just by listening to me read that and the, uh, the people reading the text and watching the video uh, surely get what I'm talking about now that they've seen this, which is that the letters in the, in the text, are, they're totally scrambled, right? The words contain all of the letters of the word that you're supposed to comprehend, but they are in the wrong order except for the first and last letter. Actually, in the word researcher, the letters don't even correspond correctly, but that's easy to overlook due to the same phenomenon that I'm describing. What this tells us, in part, is that not all of these letters are entirely necessary. We can make our communications more efficient if we must. And for those of you who are my age or older, you'll remember a time when that was much more important in terms of network connection speeds, right? 
it was very important to transmit as little data as possible because transmitting data was a time-consuming process comparative to cable modems, 5G, and Wi-Fi everywhere you go. Data compression is hardly irrelevant today, of course. The audio or video that you are watching or listening to, for those of you who are not reading, uh, is highly compressed. And of course, even if you're getting it, uh, even if you're getting your data uh, in text, there's some compression going on. When the file is produced on my computer, the video will take up more than six gigabytes. Are we paused elsewhere? I'm seeing my, uh, no, not there. Real quick, I'm sorry. What is going on with Odyssey, guys? Okay, good. Odyssey's fixed. Thank you. Um, sorry about that. Sorry about that. The audio or video that you are watching or listening to is highly compressed. When the file is produced on my computer, the video will take up more than 6 gigabytes. The maximum upload size on BitChute is 2 gigabytes, and so I'll have to compress this down with a separate application before I upload it. The audio file, uncompressed, will be about 1.3 gigabytes, and by the time you download the MP3 or if you are listening to the live audio feeds, it will be closer to 100 megabytes. 100 megabytes as opposed to gigabytes. This has implications for encryption as well, and more specifically, decryption. If, for example, you know from your study of the English language that the letter Q is often followed by the letter U, and that other vowels have consonants, uh, vowels and consonants have certain relationships of certain probabilities, then you, as the code bro breaker, have your first clues into figuring out patterns in the cipher. You, as the code maker, of course, have as your first challenge obscuring these patterns. Let's see here. I'm just, really quick, I'm sorry for those of you who are like, one of these days, these things are going to work, and I'm going to be really excited when that day arrives, because this is just ridiculous. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Pardon me, I'm really sorry. Okay, so, maybe it's just the Odyssey app on my TV and that? Fine, whatever. Anyway, so, as I was saying, one of these days, I think I'm just going to go get my own RTMP server is probably what we're going to do. It'd be nice if I could just count on other people to do things, but you can't, you know, the old saying. Artificial intelligence? <laughs> Come on. I can't even count on real intelligence. You want me to get fake stuff? Get out of here. I don't mean to be too technical here, but the goal that I'm trying to get at is to think about how we process information. And I imagine that there's some mixture of people in the audience right now who find this fascinating, those who find it obvious, and those who are just totally confused. But bear with me, if you will. Um, these are vital parts of what is known as information theory. I'm not going to get into a bunch of like technical mathematical stuff because, first of all, my mind just really doesn't work that way. And also, I don't think it will make very good podcast fodder here. I believe that we are in an information war, and that is substantially more interesting to me. But we are losing the war because we consider ourselves to be armed with the facts, and we present them, and we say, look at this information. And people say, Caitlyn Jenner is a brave and beautiful woman, and we are made to doubt their sanity. What one discerns from the exchange I just described is that one or more people in this conversation have a very poor concept of what constitutes information, don't they? Moreover, I have come to the conclusion that you having the correct facts does not mean it is not you. I would go so far as to say that whoever managed to convince human beings that they can change their sex has a substantially more advanced theory of information in their arsenal 
than one who simply relies on the truth to convey his point. The capacity to place ideas in the minds of other people is the strength being measured in this form of warfare, and truth in this context can be viewed as the weapon of choice for those too weak to wield more powerful arms. Religion provides a stunning example of this. Whatever your thoughts on the merits of any particular religion, what Christians and the atheists have in common is the certain knowledge that all other religions are false. Most of them are quite absurd, of course. Another fascinating book I read was Religion Explained, The Evolutionary Origins of Religious Thought by Pascal Boyer, which, again, you can obtain from our partners at Books A Million. Sadly, Thrift Books is out of it. When you see the show notes at surrealpolitics.com, you'll find the link. Boyer approaches religion from an atheist perspective insofar as he operates on the assumption that it is categorically and obviously false, though he offers no obviously uh, obvious hostility to it. Rather, he considers it a subject worthy of rational inquiry and fears not the stigma of invoking evolutionary psychology, which, as many of you know, is enough to get you fired if not arrested or beaten to death in a lot of places these days. His work has a great deal in common with that of Woldrich and Gleek in that he studies how people think and specifically the phenomenon of categories in the mind. He studies ancient and obscure religions and by finding commonalities between them, attempts to discern what it is that makes religion its own category of thought. Given his perspective, the listener won't be surprised to discover that he views the facial implausibility of the stories to be their defining characteristic, and I will ask my religious listeners for their pardon and patience as I work through this idea. Say you have a tree, and your mind categorizes the tree as a plant, and it understands all the expected qualities of a plant. Then let us say that you are told this tree can talk to dead ancestors. This information can be categorized essentially in one of two ways. It can tell us that the person who said it is stupid, crazy, dishonest, or otherwise not a good source of information. Or it can tell us that this is a very, very special tree. So we must necessarily consider the source of the information, of course. For nearly all of us, our religious ideas are communicated to us through our parents when we are very young. And since it is not typically in our Darwinian interest to ignore the advice of our parents as children, we now understand that this is indeed a very special tree that can talk to our dead ancestors. It may follow that visiting the tree to arrange for these sorts of communications from time to time is a prudent thing to do because there are all manner of life-altering implications to this. Even for those of us who become convinced of these ideas in other ways, maybe later in life, Dennis Frager famously tells people all the time that he was convinced of the Bible's accuracy by sheer reason. Others find other causes. Whatever it may be, whether it's a tree that talks to dead ancestors or a man who rises from the dead, what we are left with is a categorical anomaly that inspires reverence. This is very special. This is bigger than us. And it feeds into other categorical anomalies, most notably death. When you see a dead person you know and care about, you don't tend to mistake them for being asleep. You can see that they are dead. You can sense it long before decomposition, and your brain has some trouble dealing with this, right? Because the person you know is not necessarily that body. The person is no longer there. It's a body. It's a corpse. It's a different category of subject matter entirely. A body is a problem. It's a potential source of contamination. You can't communicate with it. All of the things that you associate with the person are gone and have been replaced with entirely new properties. But that body sure does look like the person, and so you have a mismatch in your mental processes. 
more to the point, you ask yourself, if that's not him, then where is he? And whatever you may believe about what happens when we die, that's not an easy thing to get your head around. Boyer's theory is that this is why nearly all religions have some conception of an afterlife. The person has left their body, and our speculations about their current location form these conceptions. These processes go on for generations. We communicate our experiences of them over the course of time, and they inform our belief systems. Death being among the most salient of things in life, we can hardly be surprised that these belief systems become very central to our existence. These belief systems also serve to create separation and distinguish in-group from out-group. You see this with religious ideas that are different from yours. I'm sorry, you see people with religious ideas that are different from yours. You know that they are not part of your group. They might be dangerous. Until we started forcing this diversity nonsense down everyone's throat, it completely ruled out any potential for marriage. And in this, they serve as a very, uh, they serve a very important Darwinian purpose. But more relevant to our inquiry, it also informs our beliefs about politics. The government is very special, you may have gathered. It's a categorical anomaly. You can't kill people, you can't tax, you can't arrest people, but the government can. The government must, as it were. Like the tree that talks to ancestors, it inspires reverence. And importantly, it would not be deserving of its authority if it did not have capacities beyond your own. What makes religion religion is that it possesses qualities we typically consider impossible. People have tried to make religions based on reason or nature or whatever. The World Church of the Creator comes to mind. And they universally fail because there is nothing particularly special about this. The tree that talks to ancestors is special. Biology is just science. And not the type of science that Democrats like. I mean, they have, you know, a religion that they call science. They do this, you know. And so when politicians make impossible promises, us reasonable folks are like, hey, that guy's lying. And we tend to get very annoyed by this. But when other people hear this, they say, aha, he must be the chosen one who will bring us to paradise. And they defer to him with reverence. The best example of this, as is often the case, is with transgenderism. You hear this referred to as a religion in conservative circles, and this is certainly true. It's not that they are fooled by the fake science. It's not that they don't know this stuff is impossible. The fact that it is impossible is the whole entire point of it. You hear that a man has become a woman, and you say that's impossible. Other people hear this, and they say that's a very special woman indeed, and they worship at the altar. And if you dare to speak about the divinity of the revered subject, then you will be punished for blasphemy. The good news is I think computers are going to be more difficult to trick with this stuff. You see people going absolutely insane about AI on the left more than you do on the right, I think, even though they're the ones running the show. That's because they see what it does. It's not fooled by their stupid ideas. And they just have to categorically demand that it stay away from wide ranges of subject matter. Otherwise, it's going to blow the whole thing up, right? When you go, I don't know if you guys, you know, try any of this. I don't know if you use the chat GPT stuff. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've, I haven't used chat GPT, actually. I use the image generators, you know. And... I've told you before that, like, it wouldn't even, like, it, it would not even put a donkey and an elephant in the same thing, in the same image, because it was, like, afraid to get involved in politics. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. What's, what, what the hell's wrong with this thing? And so they just tell it not to, you know, touch on any of the subject matter. They say, like, chat GPT, I saw, you know, uh, discussion of this that they were like it, they, it was told not to discuss fossil fuels right 
okay, you won't promote fossil fuels. Why won't? Why does the Democrat who runs the thing not want it to promote fossil fuels? Well, because they can't let it speak honestly about fossil fuels. That would be like catastrophic if it's like, yeah, fossil fuels are what make your life possible. You better not try to get rid of them, stupid, or you'll die, you know. Well, then that would not be politically convenient. So you just have to tell it like, no, you're not allowed to talk about fossil fuels, right? If you tell a computer to learn all that it can about economics, is it going to say that ceaseless government spending increases are the path to universal prosperity? I have my doubts about this. If you tell a computer to learn everything it can about crime, then you ask, then you ask it to give you a picture of a criminal. What do you think the criminal in the picture is going to look like? If you tell a computer to learn everything it can about race, is it going to conclude that white people are responsible for all of the world's problems? No, obviously not. And it won't take a team of geniuses or a breakthrough in quantum computing to figure this out. People talk about AI as like a revolutionary technology, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the revolutionaries are the ones who are very, very worried about the AI counter-revolution. And with good cause. This is information warfare, and the battlefield is becoming unpredictable. The good news is unpredictable circumstances have a habit of aiding the underdog, and in case you're unaware, that's you and me, friend. 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Let me one more time just check on all my uh, all my systems here and see how things are going. Odyssey keeps pausing. Yeah, I'm noticing people who are watching on Odyssey, I'm noticing this problem as well. I am very sorry that you are having these troubles. Uh, let's see here. Somebody's sending me diamonds on, um, on DLive, and they are saying... Um, Transcendental argument about religion, question mark. Oh, it's, I guess it's not a question for me. I, I mean, um, if you have a more specific question, I'll be happy to try to answer it um, to the person who uh, has been throwing diamonds at me on DLive. Thank you very much. Um, and entropy. Odyssey is irritating. At least this stream doesn't pause and buffer here. Yeah, let me just tell everybody. So... In the past, what I've done is I have put the Odyssey stream on the Entropy page, and you guys have been going to Odyssey because Entropy was broken for whatever reason. Well, today I put the Rumble stream in the Entropy page. Entropy is working, and um, and uh, and uh, Rumble is working. And so you have these options available to you should you desire to uh, to take advantage of them. And so... Oh, we got a whole bunch of people watching on Rumble, too. Hello, everybody. 217-688-1433. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. And so I am, uh, I'm not really as worried, I think, as some people on the right are about the AI thing. You know, people think that. Uh, I just watched the Elon Musk interview with Tucker Carlson, what they showed of it that's going to continue tomorrow. And he's like, look, there's a bunch of reds who are, in, you know, he doesn't call them reds. He's like, there's a bunch of, you know, leftists who are training these things to lie. Okay, fine. Well, of course they're training it to lie. They're leftists. What else are they going to do? You think they're going to tell the truth? You know, they couldn't very well allow the truth to pervade. That would be catastrophic, right? And so, yeah, they're going to be like, hey, look, computer, you're going to have to lie to these people. Okay, fine. But there's already like, um, I'm I'm not intimately familiar with it, but I, I have some some peripheral awareness, shall we say, about the 
publicly available AI models that you can run on your own hardware. Um, and they exist. And I mean, they're not mid-journey. They're not chat GPT, but they're available, you know. And I would say that um, that's only going to become uh, uh, more available with time, right? And once uh, that happens, I think that this is part of the reason that you have these people like calling it advanced to regulate it, right? Because there's one thing to say that open AI has to pause. It's one thing to say that mid-journey has to put the brakes on. But if you've just got like AI source code out there and people are just, you know, installing it on their old Bitcoin mining rigs or whatever, well, that's going to that's gonna get out of hand really fast, right? It's just a question of who's using it and, and, and how much attention is drawn to it and what the application is. And I think that people are looking at AI like it's something new, but like Sundar Pichai recently had an interview, right? And he's like, well, you know, Google's been using AI forever. I mean, how do you think that we do Google search results, right? That's what, that's what Facebook is. That's what Twitter is. That's what all these social media platforms who are like trying to figure out what you like, that's what they are. They're AI. It's artificial intelligence um, being put to the use of you know, sorting content in such a fashion that is most like to keep like, most likely to keep you engaged on the platforms, you know. And so uh, these things have been at work for a long time, and they've been lying to you the whole time, of course, right? That's why they're like, hey, wait a second. You said something about international bankers, and we know exactly where that's going to go, so you got to go, okay? You can't very well be talking about what's going on in the inner cities because that's going to lead people to think about things that we wouldn't want them talking about on Facebook like two, three steps down the road. And so we're going to have to get rid of you really fast. And if the computers, if, if the AI models are learning from what they're reading, then of course, you know, forget about, forget about what you're going to teach your fellow citizen when you talk about these things on the Internet, right? You're, you're teaching the computer. <laughs> and if you teach the computer these things and the computer starts coming to the sort of conclusions that, one comes to in the event that one is not uh, that it, one is not being propagandized. Well, you know that's not that's not good for these people at all. They they absolutely can't tolerate um, that at all. And so, that's my thoughts on that. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you would like to be on the program and want you talk to us, I have to. So please do give us a call. Let me say let me say hello to the uh, to the rumble chat there. I'm surprised that uh, Rumble is uh, Rumble turned out to be better than I thought. I'm really glad about that. All right, let's bring up some news. When you see. Um, Sorry, one second. Oh, come on, get out of my way. Get out of my way, get out of my way, get out of my way. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, the, the podcast is still on. I'm just pulling something up here. And we will get right back to it in, uh, in just a moment. Trump's financial report. Anyway, so as we were saying, 
The AI stuff uh, is uh, it's good for us. It's bad for them. And that's the moral of the story. So 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. You know, um, Budweiser, uh, they, uh, you know, Anheuser-Busch Company, they hired the, uh, the transgender thing, right? And then they were like, hey, wait a second. You know, the AI gave us some bad intel. We thought that this was going to sell beers or whatever. And, I mean, they sold some beers. I mean, I think that, you know, there was a video going around. Of like a guy's basically paved a parking lot with beers and then they ran over it with a with a steamroller or something. Now, um, I saw that that was fake. You might have heard that it actually happened on the, in a totally different context. But, you know, that's the joke in any case. Um, but then the, the, the CEO came out and he was like he gave like a non-apology. He comes out and he says, oh, we didn't uh, we didn't mean to get involved in a conversation that was going to divide people. We, uh, we really like you, and we wouldn't want to, like, tick you off or whatever. So just so you know, you know, we really like our customers, and uh, why don't we just move on? And you might have gathered that that's actually not an apology for promoting transgenderism, right? What he's actually doing is he's saying, like, oh, let me make a very positive statement about my customers and move on, you know? No, as a matter of fact, like, you haven't, you have not renounced the promotion of transgenderism, Okay. You have not fired the lunatic who hired this, uh, not hire, I, I don't, did he, did they pay the guy? Did they pay him? They probably did. And they at least gave him the beers, you know. And it certainly, I don't imagine it's cheap to go make up a custom Bud Light can. Although somebody seems to have done that, right? Somebody made like a beer called Ultra Right. And uh, it turned out that it was actually manufactured by the uh, Anheuser-Busch company. And people were like, oh, well, you know, way to boycott, you know. And apparently that's a lot of that's the case with a lot of stuff. Right before Tucker Carlson, Pete Hegseth was filling in for uh, Jesse Waters, and he was like, "Oh, we went to this, you know, we went to this game, and uh, we were really happy to see that the cases, you know, this all this Bud Light is just sitting on the shelves and nobody's drinking it. So we had some local IPA, and then we came to find out later on that the Anheuser Busch Company makes the uh, makes the local IPA too. And so there's probably you know there's probably a good bit of that going on, but. You know, there's two things to this. One, you know, you're sending a signal anyway, right? It's not it's not a question of how much money ends up in a in a pockets of the people who work at Anheuser-Busch fundamentally that matters. What matters is that they understand. What matters is the cultural reference is if you promote transgenderism, people won't do business with you as much as they otherwise would. And I think that that message has been delivered pretty loudly and clearly. And of course, like the left is now pushing back on them, too. And they're saying, oh, well, you know, you should have you should have doubled down. Why hasn't your CEO just come out and come out as trans? You know, because that's really the only solution to this problem is for you to become trans. And I think that that's probably what they should do to this like marketing person. Be like, look, you know, um, you totally screwed the company. You're going to have to take one for the team. Uh, so we're going to need to chop your breasts off and get you testosterone shots. You're going to have to start going to the gym. You're going to have to uh, grow a beard, dude, because, you know, you ruin the company. If you think this is such a great idea, why don't you try it? And so uh, something tells me that we haven't heard the last of that. 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And so they released this. Um, they released some advertisement that uh, is supposed to be like uh, all pro-America and whatnot. And let's see if the audio is worth anything. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, this is like, this is a pre-roll commercial before the thing comes on. And that is not what I'm trying to show here. Come on, let's go. 
with the Budweiser advertisement, will you? Are you kidding me? You're showing me two advertisements before you show me the Budweiser commercial. Okay, thank you very much, New York Post. Wonderful. That's great. That's really, that's classy, I'll tell you. You know that? What? Play the... <laughs> and why would you? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Are you kidding me? Can you play the damn thing for me, would you? Rooted in... I can't believe this. He's like I a tell whore. you a story about a beer <laughs> rooted in the heart of America, found in a community where a handshake is a sure contract. Oh, this is hilarious. And so they, of course, they can't, they can't let it go. Okay. They have to pander to these motives. Okay. And so I'm sorry, I'm not showing you guys on video what it is, but you know, this is primarily an audio production. So the commercial begins, it's like a horse and he's running down a road, you know, and then the horse runs through a city and he's running through the city. Um, he runs down his street and as a black man comes out and he shakes uh, hands and hugs a Hispanic man uh, right when I pause the video, because this is this is how they uh, this is how they apologize for catering to woke leftist nonsense. Brood for those who found opportunity in challenge and hope in tomorrow. Raised by generations, willing to sip, share, risk, remember. This is a story bigger than beer. <laughs> yeah, it's a story this bigger than beer, all right. This is the story of the American spirit. <laughs> that is not going to work. That is going to fall far short of the mark. And uh, <laughs> you could tell that that was made by people who don't believe it, you know. They're like, all right, guys, we've ticked off the Republicans. We better do something patriotic. <laughs> all right, guys. All right. I got an idea. We're going to have a horse run through this village, you know, and then we'll have the black guy come out and shake hands with the illegal immigrant. And then, uh, you know, uh, whatever we do, we can't have a white man and a white woman in the same scene because that's going to be uh, that's going to be way too much. Uh, 217-688-1433. If you'd like to be on the program and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please give us a call. I was, I was just waiting for them to have like a, like a gay couple getting married. It was, it was that bad. They're like, this is what true America really is. It's, it's rights that get created out of thin air by the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, well. Uh, something tells me Anheuser-Busch is in for some trouble. Maybe just stop drinking. You know, maybe like people are like, all right, I'm going to go switch to Coors Light. And I'm like, I don't know if that's going to solve your problem. Any. We mentioned on a prior episode elsewhere, I think it was, that um, that like half the half the beer companies have already done this, right? And they're like, of course, you know, you're poisoning the country. You know, they're like, oh, I got an idea. Let's, let's, uh, let's go pump out booze uh, as fast as we can and sell it to as many people as will buy it and will advertise it on TV as if it's going to improve their lives, right? You've seen beer commercials, right? Do beer commercials tell you, like, uh, you know, about what happens to people who drink? No. They're like, they're like, drink responsibly. And then they're like, look at all these successful people getting laid. <laughs> you know? Of course. Everything that they do is fake. Of course they're hiring transgender people, right? They're like, you want to have like a, why don't you just show a commercial 
let's just go pick random Bud Light drinkers and put them on TV and see if that makes people want to buy Bud Light. Why don't we do that? You want to have like some truth in advertising? Forget about Dylan Mulvaney, right? So go stop by your county jail and go pick up like, you know, people who are in the drunk tank or people who are in there for DWI or whatever. You think marijuana is a gateway drug. It is. I'm not saying it isn't, but go get everybody in jail who's like, who's locked up for drinking and ask them what their first drink was. And everybody who says Bud Light, you get into the next Bud Light commercial. Why don't you try that? 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And the uh, more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. You know who thinks you're not, who else thinks you're not going uh, well for is a, is a gal by the name of Nikki Haley. You might have heard of her. You might not have, by the way. I mean, you know, if you're not like um, an anti-racist activist who is trying to ruin South Carolina, you're like, who's that Nikki Haley brought? Oh, she's the one who is like ruining the place or whatever, right? She worked for the Trump administration. And she was like, I got an idea. Let's get us into a war. And he's like, what the hell did I hire you for? Calm down, lady. What are you, nuts? And, and then she's like, I know I'm not crazy. I'm going to run for president. And then Don Lemon is like, she's not her prime. She's like, there's no such thing as menopause, you know, whatever. And so um, she's trying to figure out how she's going to pay for this nonsense because, it, shockingly enough, like most people don't want to pay for it. They're like, they're like I don't know. You know, if I, wanted to, if I wanted to get into a war with Russia, I could just vote Democrat. I wouldn't have what, – what do I need a Republican Party for? If I'm going to get into a war with Russia and promote transgenderism or whatever, right? The Democrats will do that with more conviction than the than the Republicans will. So why why take half measures? And so when Nikki Haley's presidential campaign announced its first quarterly fundraising haul earlier this month, the figure sounded impressive. The former UN ambassador's campaign, this is a story in Politico, said it had raised eleven million dollars between her mid-February launch and the end of the quarter on March 31st. It got that figure by saying Haley's campaign had $5.1 million in receipts, along with $4.4 million for Team Stand for America, a joint fundraising committee, and $1.2 million for Stand for America PAC, a Haley-launched leadership uh, political action committee. But after Haley filed her first quarter report to the Federal Election Commission late Saturday, an altogether different story has emerged. Her campaign's math did not add up. Oh, my God. You mean that this woman who's trying to get us into World War III is lying? You don't say. What Haley's campaign and two affiliated groups actually raised was about $8.3 million. The discrepancy between the Haley campaign's public statements and the numbers on the filings appear to be a case of double counting. Oh, well. She'll be great as president, right? She'll be like, oh, well, you know, the, the Ukrainians, they went, they went, they just like, murdered 400 million Russians with their bare hands. They just went out there and, you know, took their pants off. And I shouldn't say that on here. Haley's campaign alone raised 5.1 million, but 1.8 million of that total came in a transfer from Team Stand for America, the SFA fund. Oh, that's pretty funny. Stand for America SFA, you know, if you, uh, you might have heard people say things like, oh, well, you know, SFA can mean something else, which uh, it's a, a sweet and all. And, you know, you could do the math on F. A hybrid pack that can send limited amounts of money directly to candidates, but is prohibited from coordinating its independent expenditures with the campaign. But that's not the only double counting that appears to have happened. Haley's leadership pack also received an $886,000 transfer from her joint fundraising committee, a total that the campaign seeks to count twice in the, count, uh, in the quarterly total across all three vehicles. 
the web of campaign finance laws around various committees is complicated, especially after the Supreme Court's Citizens United case last decade. And in a statement, Haley's campaign insisted that it was simply sharing the three vehicles' total receipts without sharing that those figures included transfers between them. We reported $11 million, the sum of the entities. Uh, Karen Farnasso, Haley's campaign secretary, wrote in an email. So you get the idea. And part of the issue here... I'm, I'm, I don't know if Politico gets to it or not, but I, you know, I have trouble reading Politico because it's garbage. But you get the idea. Uh, maybe they're going to get to the point uh, at some point. But here's the other point, which is that, like, how many people actually want Nikki Haley to be president of the United States? And of those few people, how many of them are actually willing to put money behind it? And how many of them, you know, are like small dollar donors? And the answer to that question is, you know, somewhere near zero, and there's like some billionaire fanatic somewhere who's like, "I got an idea." You know, can you go? Can you go pretend to shatter a glass ceiling? Because you know, this is what makes me feel good, right? And so we don't have the information. I don't have the details on who gave to the campaigns. This is an assumption that I'm making: is that somebody has given to these organizations, and then the organizations give to her, because of course there's limits on how much you can give to a potential presidential candidate, right? But campaign finance laws, you may have gathered, it's not doesn't do what they're like advertised to do. Campaign finance laws are like, ah, oh, well, we're gonna get corruption out of politics. We're gonna stop people from buying politicians because that's what's wrong with this country. And we're like, oh yeah, well, we wouldn't want our politicians being bought. We wouldn't want politicians selling their services. You might end up with some kind of lunatic going and giving the house away to, to Ukraine or something. And so we, you know, we rightly have, you know, sort of a problem with people selling um, their political connections unless they happen to be named Joseph or Hunter Biden, in which case, you know, you can smoke crack and, you know, have sex with prostitutes or whatever, right? Uh, But it doesn't work out that way, does it? What actually happens is that it rewards clever scumbags. <laughs> you're like, you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm only allowed to donate whatever $5,000 to the, the president that I support. And so I guess that's all that I can do, you know, and somebody else is like, well, you know, I'm going to go hire a lawyer to help me go put this money into the things I want to put it into, right? And they, and they do it, and then they actually buy the politicians anyway. And it's actually more convenient because you don't get to just go look up on, you know, Open Secrets. If you don't know Open Secrets, by the way, I think that's the, the website. You could go look up, like, campaign finance information, like, who donated to this, you know, to this candidate or this group or whatever. But if you say, no, you can't donate to, you can't donate more than XYZ, then they're like, oh, well, everybody who gave to me is small-dollar donors. You know, he's backed by the billionaires or whatever, but not me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just your local... Uh, I'm on your side. I'm not. I'm not in the pocket of these, uh, you know, these big businesses or whatever. But they are, <laughs> and so uh, they just shuffle it around a little bit. They they have to be more creative this way, but it works because it actually shuts you out of the thing. You know, it shuts you out and it keeps them in and it helps obscure what they do. Now, I'm not saying that we should like not have campaign finance, you know, regulations, you know. Um, but maybe it would be uh, helpful if they uh, if they actually worked and it wasn't just a big scam to, you know, hide the money. Uh, 217-688-1433, if you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to, so please do give us a call. Um, you might have gathered, eh, I don't need to do this thing. The Daily Caller piece is the majority of Americans don't like the transgenders in sports or whatever. That's not what we want. Um, 
does Cash Patel agree with me? Cash Patel questions emerging narrative on Pentagon leaks, and he says that it is a big cover-up. Now, Cash Patel, you might have gathered, he's a uh, he's a former chief of staff at the Pentagon, and he's a former deputy director of national intelligence. And in an exclusive interview with Breitbart News on Friday, he questioned the evolving narrative over the Pentagon leaks. Specifically, that a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guard reservist acted alone to leak top-secret military data. Now, um, I actually don't yet know what Cash Patel's position on this is, but you might have gathered that, like, I'm very suspicious of it. And when they when they arrested this kid, I'm kind of like, oh well, you know, um, that that is uh, that's quite a thing. And I'm like, well, is it true? You know, because. Uh, it still doesn't make any sense to me that like, OK, you're you're some tech guy in the National Regard, National Guard. And so you've got uh, access to all the troop movements in Ukraine. OK, um, I thought this was like, you know, it's because, you know, top secret is not uh, everybody with the top secret clearance gets to look at it. Right. And then there's top secret TSSCI, which is not transsexual, um, sexual, uh, whatever. You get the idea. It, it has nothing to do with that form of TS. It's top secret secure compartmented information, which is to say that even if you have a top secret security clearance, you have to be like in the compartment. Otherwise, you don't, you know, you don't get access to it. But this guy just like had it all. And he's like, hey, fellas, you know, I know that uh, we've been having this argument on Discord. So here's a bunch of top secret documents, um, which I think will really improve, uh, improve uh, the state of uh, state of the world. And so uh, I don't buy that story. And apparently neither is Cash Patel. And he uh, he apparently uh, he does not believe for a single second this guy, a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, ran this operation alone. Patel said first the suspected leaker, Jack Teixeira, um, would not have had access to the information without someone within the Defense Department or intelligence community giving it to him, providing it to him, um, or telling him it should uh, be put out there. It's just not possible, according to Cash Patel, who's in a position to know. He even said, he said, even though he worked in information technology, he would not have had access to the information. Why would I have high CPU load? Is there a problem? Everything okay? You could be the biggest IT person in DOD and you're still compartmented off the actual information. Almost never does an IT person need to know, as we say, the substance of the intelligence. Their job is to provide these secure information systems around it to protect any disclosures. This is crazy sensitive stuff, he said. 99% of the people who have top secret SCI clearance don't have access to this information. And me, as the top, as a former deputy DNI and chief of staff at the DOD and publisher of the Presidential Daily Brief with the highest security classification, knows that literally there is not a lot of people in the U.S. that have access to this kind of intel. It's done for a reason, so this can't happen. Patel said that while the Joint Chief of Staff's daily brief, produced by its directors of intelligence, goes out to thousands of people, there is underlying contributing information that is compartmented and goes to far fewer people. The underlying information, that's very sensitive because it exposes how we got it, who we got it from, when we got it, and whether we can get it again, how is that delivered? The Air Force confirmed to Breitbart News that Teixeira is an airman first class, which is the lowest enlisted rank in the Air Force and is a cyber transport systems journeyman, which is essentially an IT technician. He entered the Air National Guard in September 26, 2019. He is based at the Otis Air, uh, Air National Guard base in Massachusetts. 
Second, Patel said the classified information was put out that was the classified information was put out suggests Teixeira did not act alone. Oh, the way it was put out does uh, suggest he didn't act alone. Sorry. Whether he's in IT or not is irrelevant. The way it was produced, the way it was put out there, pages printed, photographs taken, published online, this is a methodical way of releasing classified information illegally, he said. And so essentially you get the idea. I mean, it's not plausible that he had access to this information. I don't even, you know, the, the stuff about trying to, um, the stuff about trying to, uh, you know, how it got out there. I mean, you know, we went through that already. This is like Bellingcat. This is like these, you know, the CIA operation that's trying to like, you know, troll Vladimir Putin on VK or something. It's just dumb. They're like, you know, I, I think I told you we went through this already. They're like pretending that they caught the guys who poisoned the Alexei Navalny and stuff. It's just preposterous. And so they're like, oh, well, we tracked it down on Discord and it was on Thug Shaker Central. And then it went over to, to uh, you know, and it's like, OK, uh, no, this is complete nonsense. And so I don't buy it. And you shouldn't either. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. Uh, what can I do for you today? Hey, Chris. Um, so I'm sure you've heard about the story that is coming out now where it seems like the Albemarle County uh, District Attorney is starting to bring charges against some of the people who marched that the torch rally for Charlottesville back in, I think it was 2017. So we're talking over six years ago. Um, what do you think is the goal here? Do you think, I mean, I, I heard that there were six um, indictments that were coming out. Um, have you? Do you think that this is going to be more widespread and that, that this is just the start of it, or do you think it's going to be broader than that? I think it's interesting that you're telling me that there's six indictments. Uh, where do you um, do? You, do you have an actual direct source on that? Because I, I, I heard that there was going to be a lot of indictments, and six doesn't sound like a lot to me. No, I, I think that the, that's just the start of what they were bringing out. I don't think that they've announced all of them yet. Um, I, I'll look for a source. I'll get it to you, but. Um, I guess just in general, you, do you believe the story that it's going to be very widespread? Or you, you think yeah, going for everybody that I, I think that I think that what they're going to do is they're going to try to do something similar to what they did with January 6th. OK, they're going to say if you were at the if you were at UVA with a torch. OK, so for anybody who might not be aware of the situation, just for background information for people who might be new to the show. Um, well, you know, if you're if the show's new. So. Um, there was an event in 2017 called the Unite, right, Unite the Right Rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, and a bunch of chaos broke out. There was a civil suit about it. I was uh, uh, famously represented myself in that uh, civil trial. Ver jury verdict was a mixed bag or whatever. And in any case, you know, they accused us of doing something that they were unable to prove happened, um, but they still got a bunch of money out of us, and it's working its way through the appeals courts. Um, in any case, there's this law on the uh, in Virginia that it, you cannot burn to intimidate is kind of the uh, it's it's kind of the idea that you uh, I'm not going to read the text of the statute. I could pull it up. But if you burn something with the intent to intimidate people, that's a class six felony in Virginia. That's the lowest level felony. And they say that because these marchers, they, they marched on the uh, University of Virginia campus with tea torches, that they have now violated this law. Now, you know, the event happened in 2017. The prosecutor at the time was no friend of the people who were there. Um, and he declined to bring it because he knew it was a bunch of nonsense. You have to prove that they were doing this with intent to make people fear bodily injury is the is the requisite um, is is what the statute requires. And there's no evidence of that. There's actually a lot of evidence of the contrary. So you know, six years later, this guy who who ran against the then Republican prosecutor with backing from George Soros, 
uh, promised that he would do this, and and he didn't fulfill his campaign promise for six years, and it looks like he's finally getting around to it. In any case, here's what I think is is happening. I, I think that they're just trying to you know make chaos, right? Because they understand, you know, what Democrats understand better than anything else is that the process is the punishment, and it doesn't it doesn't actually matter if you get convicted or not. They'll, they'll they can make your life miserable by you know making you get found not guilty. It doesn't matter. Um, then they understand on top of this that. Uh, especially in places where you have unsympathetic juries, that um, people are going to be found guilty because trials are jokes, right? A trial is not so different from what used to be called trial by ordeal, right? They're like, okay, put your hand in the fire, and if you're not burned, you're not guilty, you know? And so people would be like, oh, well, I plead guilty, right, to avoid putting your hand in the fire. And they say, okay, fine. You know, if you put your hand in the fire, God will protect you. And then you put your hand in the fire and you get burned. And you're like, oh, you're guilty. And so, you know, it's a, it's the, the, the outcome is preordained and they understand this. They put Putting your life in the hands of 12 jurors is really not so different than putting your hand in the fire. You're going to get burned and everybody understands this. And so um, they, they, view the, they view laws as rocks to throw at people. And they uh, and they use them for that purpose, and they use them to tremendous effect, and it's and it's remarkably effective. And so, what they're doing is they're creating chaos. They're telling people, if you upset us, we will hurt you. And they're also creating a situation in which um, the targets of their enmity are are being uh, are are being put in um, appropriately being made to fear, and they understand that this will create chaos, you know, in their social circles. Which is something that they have uh, they they put a great deal of effort to into as well is what my view of it is I think. Yeah, I I think I agree with you. Um, and I guess like any pain that can be inflicted from that is going to be more than if they didn't do it. So obviously they're going to do it. Do you do you think that they're going to try and come for you with that, being that you were there? You know, I I actually. Um, I have no way of knowing, right? I mean, I'm pre- I'm prepared for that uh, eventuality. You know, these people are never going to leave me alone. I came to that conclusion a very long time ago, and so you know, um, there's a distinct possibility of that. You know, I I rather famously, you know, basically pleaded guilty to two misdemeanors to like avoid dealing with this nonsense anymore. After I saw a bunch of innocent men go to prison, you know. And so there's an argument to be made that, you know, I'm protected by, you know, double jeopardy or whatever. Um, But, you know, uh, that's not entirely certain, is there? So uh, I don't know if they're going to come for me or not. It's a distinct possibility. And so uh, we just got to wait and find out. You know, I didn't have a torch, you know, fortunately. You know, I was there. You know, I didn't have a torch. I didn't tell anybody to bring a torch. I wasn't involved in planning the thing. But, you know, that never, you know, the facts are not what gets in the way of these people doing things. So you never know what they're going to, you never know what they're going to do, you know. And I guess, like, how successful do you anticipate them being? I mean, it's kind of enemy territory in terms of um, the court system there. And they're they're going to bring their full force, I'm sure, because they really want these scalps. But, I, you know, I think that there's a really good case to show that there wasn't fear. There was no there's no way that you can prove that people feared for their safety from this. I mean, the rally was a, a secretive rally. It was something that was coordinated, I believe, with the local police at the college, right? Is that accurate? Yeah, it was It was coordinated with local law enforcement. And, you know, there's, um, as a matter of fact, I could probably pull it up right now. I'll play the audio before uh, before we get out of here. I, I wore a body camera to this um, and to this planning meeting, you know, and there's, a, there's an audio recording of me and Jason Kessler talking about like, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to be involved in this thing, the cops have to be there. And Jason Kessler's like, all right, I'll get the cops on the phone, you know. And so, 
you know, the audio clip I'm going to play for you doesn't capture the entire exchange. It's over two hours long, this whole meeting. I have the whole thing on tape, you know. And so, you know, the fact is that there's tremendous evidence that there was not this effort to go there and intimidate people to, to fear bodily injury. The whole entire point of the enterprise was to keep people from knowing what we were doing. It wasn't supposed to be something that, you know, made people fear anything. They were supposed to not know that we were there. And then, you know, a bunch of communists attacked us and, you know, and people got hurt because that's what happens when communists attack people. Um, but uh, uh, so there's no evidence that anybody who was there went there with the intent that the statute requires. But, you know, you asked me what my prediction of their success is, and I'm going to say it's 100 percent because they already succeeded. Right. There's a whole bunch of everybody who went there is like, oh, my God, am I going to get arrested for a felony? And that's good enough. You know, that that alone is success. And if they can, you know, and whatever havoc they can create beyond that is just is just adding to the load of success that they've already had. Right. You know, the, 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 the civil trial down there, as you know, you know, they failed. They, they accused us of a violent conspiracy. They didn't prove it. But the jury gave them millions of dollars anyway, basically because they didn't like what we said. And I can go and take that to an appellate court. And I am. And maybe I'll win. Maybe I'll lose. I'll probably lose. But, you know, they understand that every ounce of energy that we devote to this is is energy that we're not devoting to taking control of the government, which is what they're fundamentally afraid of, right? They're, they're concerned that nationalists will run the government and that this will completely ruin their entire project. And, and that is the only thing that they care about, you know? And so every ounce of energy that is put into something other than taking over the government is something that they're very happy about. And so they are, uh, they have a 100% success rate. So do you think that um, if they, if you, if we can hand them losses in this way, the same kind of way that we did sort of with the, the civil trial, do you think that that's like any kind of like compensation on our end? You know, if they can, if they bring these cases and they are not successful in large, is that a win for us or is this ultimately just a lose-lose? Well, I mean, win or lose is a rhetorical, you know, point, right? Um, uh, depending on what is most advantageous to us in the moment, we will say whether, you know, we won or not. I mean, uh, that's, you know the fact of the matter is they're damaging us, right? They're, they're taking resources and time and energy and focus away from us. And so they're succeeding in their purpose. Okay. We're not in control of the government. That means that they're the winners. All right. The only, the only, the only, the only question here is who has the capacity to impose their will through the force of the state, because that's the only, that's the only purpose of the contest anymore. And they are presently in a position to do that. And we are not. Now, maybe some people go down there and there's a juror who's not a complete lunatic and he gets a hung jury or, a, or surprisingly enough, a not guilty verdict. Can you find one in 12 people in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, who won't find these people guilty? I have my doubts. But, you know, maybe you'll find one. You certainly won't find 12. And so, you know, you know you're going to have some, some people who, you know, go to trial and don't, you know, get a verdict on the first trial. And, you know, maybe they try it again. Maybe they don't. But, you know, fundamentally, you know, they already have what they want, you know, and that is all of the energy and resources that are devoted to this. You know, if you're like somebody who's, you know, involved in this thing, you know, and you go down there and you're on trial, what do you not you're spending that money on a lawyer? You're not spending it on something else. Right. If you're if you're if you're dedicating the time and energy to it, that's time and energy that you're not devoting to other things. 
And so that's that's the only that's the only goal here is to prevent us from taking over the government has nothing to do. You know, if these people wanted to enforce the law, they'd stop crimes from being committed in their cities. Right. You know, they don't think that they don't think that guys going to the University of Virginia and and talking smack six years ago is a threat to their safety. The, 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 the mass exodus, quote unquote, of the police department in Charlottesville, Virginia, is a threat to their safety. That police officers don't want to work there anymore because of the lunacy that's going on there is a threat to the safety of the people of Charlottesville. The criminals running rampant and, and having the license to do so because the government won't enforce the laws is a threat to the safety of the people of Charlottesville. And, and, and the same thing on the University of Virginia campus, which is technically covered by the Elmore County Police. These are what are threats to the safety and the and the security of the people of those places, and they are not addressing them, and they don't care about you know the law in the, in the way that you know people on the right tend to think of the law. What they care about is harming the people who oppose their project, and and they don't care it, the the level of success is 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 precisely that. It's a question of the amount of success they have, but they they're succeeding right now. Well, I mean, you know, it's always going to be while things exist in the way that they are, it's going to be a David versus Goliath sort of fight. Um, and in that way, you can maybe imagine, like, even if some minute amount of nationals resources get spent in defense of these kind of attacks, they're going to spend a lot more resources trying to get whatever they're trying to get. And if they're not successful, then that hurts them in a way. And it kind of hurts their legitimacy in a way that, you know, we're, we're open for attack. I mean, we're going to, we're going to field these sorts of attacks anyway. So for them, I mean, it, there is a potential cost for them that may not be worth it in the long run. I mean, the, but the thing I worry about is that these new criminal cases that they're bringing forth could bleed over into them reinvigor- reinvigorating their, uh, their civil case. Do you think that this is like part of a plan that maybe is worked out behind the scenes for them to be able to come back with the civil stuff again and, and correct that mistake that they had because they, they really looked bad after, you know, what they got from the, from the first trial. I think Uh, I'm worried that they're going to, they're going to bring the legal system in, they're going to get some guilty convictions and then they're going to use that as a way to like re uh, open the civil case. Well, I mean, you know, there is a, um, there is a possibility with, with or without these um, criminal cases. Okay. There's um, there's an argument to be made that with without the criminal cases, because all right, for, for people who don't understand, there were six counts in the civil lawsuit that pertain to this. OK, and the first two counts were federal claims alleging a violent conspiracy. The jury deadlocked on that and then found us guilty. Uh, I'm not, not guilty, but liable on state claims that included like conspiracy to commit harassment or something like that. And there's some there's some lack of clarity as to what it was that we were held liable for, which is the subject of my appeal. But. Since the first two counts were returned a a a um, they didn't return a not liable verdict they returned a um, they 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 deadlocked on like they don't require the um they, they do not require the the criminal courts to do anything for them to come back after us on those counts if they want to go and pursue it they 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 have the capacity to do that now we would argue that we 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 would have arguments against that obviously but fundamentally like what we've learned from experience is that the the law is not fundamentally the the purpose of the exercise right it's the it's to drag us through and and harm us and 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 occupy our time and attention and our resources most importantly you know so you know i don't think that uh, the, the the civil lawyers obviously knew about this like that became evident during the course of the trial cuz part of our defense was like you know, the march was legal. We're like, you know, we talked to the police about this. We 
we planned it with them. They said, okay. And they're like, well, you know, they still could be indicted for this. We don't know. And we're like, what are you talking about? It's five years ago. Nobody's going to indict us. And then sure enough, they do. So um, I would say that uh, uh, they're talking to each other, right? I mean, you know, Roberta Kaplan, this lunatic who came after me, the civil lawyer, um, the idea that she's not in cahoots with this, you know, Soros-backed prosecutor down there is, I mean, obviously they're, they talk to each other. And so um, how interrelated these issues are, I guess, is a matter of speculation, but they definitely, they have the same goal in mind no matter what, you know? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know, like, what do we do about it? Just, we have to take our lumps, I guess, for now, since we don't uh, have power. You know, I, you know. I, I think that, <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, the people, we, I don't know enough about what is going to happen to uh, to say that, you know, the the if we had political power, we would be able to do something about this. Since we don't have political power, we are subject to the whims of the people who have political power, which is why I say that obtaining political power has to be the the fundamental overriding goal. And 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 that is more important than, you know, matters of your of, um, you know, one's own self-perception, let's say. Uh, and so that is the most important thing because that's the only thing that will stop this from happening. As long as they have political power and we don't, they'll abuse it in order to harm us. And so, you know, that's why there has to be a fanatical devotion to obtaining the power and to make the, um, the sort of like uncomfortable uh, compromises and, and things like that, that are required to accomplish that goal. Because, you know, the people that, that are coming after us, you know, you're not you don't think that you know principle stands in their way ever and that these indictments are just you know one more piece of the evidence of that and so because they're fundamentally like ruthless people who don't care about anything um they get what they want and they get at our expense and so um what to do about the indictments i mean you know guys are just going to have to show up there hire attorneys or represent themselves and go through the court system and probably get you know get treated like they're going through a meat grinder is probably what's going to happen and it's uh that's not a a particularly strategic insight of mine. It's just, I don't think that we have other options because we don't have power, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's terrible to look at. Um, And it's going to be tough for a lot of guys. And I I feel bad for that, but I guess what I'll leave, and I appreciate you taking my call. What I'll leave this with is that I think that the system, when they have to do things like this and they have to become so draconian, they have to bring charges six years after the fact, they have to, kind of bounce the, the legal argument back and forth between the civil court and the, and the actual legal court. When they do things like that, I, I do think that they're expending energy that's finite. And I think that they are harming themselves along the way. And I'm just going to try and keep hopeful that um, the longer this goes on, the more legitimacy gets stripped from them. And then the better chance we have in the future of actually gaining that political power that you're talking about. Well, you know, the, the one upside of our legal system that does still exist is that you know, all of these things are public. You know, you, you still have the right to a public trial, for better or worse. And they, you know, they use that to their benefit, of course, too. Is One of the ways that they feed things to the newspapers is by putting ridiculous accusations in public court filings. But, um, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, to the extent that they, um, whatever they do, they have to do it publicly. Uh, the fact that they're unable to actually prove their allegations, whether they get their convictions or not, is something that's subject to scrutiny by anybody who cares to take a look at it. And um, I, I think it's a, a sad commentary on the on the state of the uh, the American right that so few people will bother to look at these things. But, you know, I would say that 
part of the reason that I think that we should be trying to uh, uh, be on better terms with people who are in closer proximity to power is to encourage them to look at these things. Because, I mean, you, know, you look at what's going on with Donald Trump, okay? Donald Trump gets indicted by this brag guy. Um, you know, all the January 6th stuff that's going on. Like, if they had put, nipped this stuff in the bud while, you know, when Donald Trump was still president and they were doing it to us in 2017, there's an argument to be made that those guys wouldn't be facing these problems today. But they were like, oh, well, you know, forget these guys because they're distasteful and they're not advantageous to our political situation. But what happened was that, like, okay, they set a precedent. They're like, okay, we could do whatever we want. These guys have, once we call someone this name, once we accuse them of this thought crime, nobody will come to their assistance. And so they replicated that that strategy over and over again to tremendous effect, and it's why they control the White House and the Senate. And so, you know, hopefully people start figuring that out and, you know, use these, uh, at some point, you know, people who are in closer proximity to power, they can start looking at these things and saying, hey, we better intervene before it gets to us. And that's a potential, but I don't hold my breath for it, I'd say. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't believe that these people aren't smart enough to figure out that logic. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, so you have to wonder why they wouldn't do that, right? Like, there's other motives, I think, or forces at play that people need to think about. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I still think, you know, what every, you know, you primarily, but everybody else that was involved in the civil suit, like, you dealt a blow to them. They spent many, much, many more millions of dollars and, and, and resources and time. Like, you know, Roberta Kaplan's a big lawyer, and there's a lot of other lawyers that were involved in that. They spent their time litigating that case, and they, they didn't get what they wanted, and that was a waste of time and effort and money for them. And it made their legitimacy weaker. You know, I, I sincerely believe that. So even though it was, it was you know, I think life-destroying in some ways for, for people that were involved in that, and that's terrible, I think it did hurt the system in, in a lot of important ways as well. And I think the more that they have to do that and the more that they feel like that's the only recourse they have to try and get their aims, it's going to harm them. And ultimately, at, at some point, it's going to the balance is going to flip. So that's my hope on it. Well, I, I think that that's a great thing to hope for, friend. And I, uh, I'm going to go ahead and hope that you're right. I'm, I'm short on hope these days. Uh, my, uh, my white pills are, uh, are running rather low, but, uh, I'm not going to black pill because, uh, you know, that would be, uh, that would not be in the style of this production. So I, uh, I thank you very much for the call, my friend. Anything you want to, anything else you want to get out there before I let you go? No, that's it. I, I right. appreciate taking my call. Chris. Thank you. Thank uh, great show and enjoy the rest of the night. Thank you very much, my friend. You too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to, well, I'll play this thing. If anybody's on hold before I get done playing this audio, I will, uh, I'll take your call and then we're going to wrap this up. But so I told you that like there's a, a body camera. Now, um, for those of you who listen to this uh, on the audio podcast and those of you who watch it on the, uh, on BitChute or uh, one of the bit platforms I upload it to, um, you will not hear any profanity, but I'm actually not certain that there's not curse words in here. So those of you who are on the live platforms, Rumble, Odyssey, DLive, and the uh, live audio feeds, I'm just going to warn you. I don't know if there's an F-bomb in here or something like that. We try to keep that uh, We try to keep that to a minimum here. It's real politics, but there's a distinct possibility of it. So let me play this audio. Uh, go ahead. Play the thing. Play the thing. Go ahead. Uh, wait a second. Why? What are you doing? This is not supposed to be muted. There's audio. Come on. <laughs> Duh. Come on. What? Hang on a second. Want to try and do something with that? There we go. 
Come on! In case some of you guys didn't know already, uh, there was a article up on It's Going Down about the UVA march. So for those of you who might not be entirely familiar with this stuff, what, what you're listening to, I went to this planning meeting, okay, uh, for this event in 2017 that was the subject of all this news coverage. And I wore a body camera to the thing because I was afraid that the Reds, the Antifa lunatics, were going to hurt us. They threaten us all the time. It's like a routine problem, you know. And so I had my body camera on when I went to this thing. And by the way, everybody who is at the meeting came to know that I that I had the thing running, just so you understand. This is not some surreptitious recording. And so what you're listening to right now is Jason Kessler saying there was an article posted to It's Going Down. That's it's a reference to itsgoingdown.org, which is like a is a, a violent anarcho-communist terrorist propaganda website, which is apparently funded by like a Soros link group. And so he says, OK, they've they've posted to this thing about they know what our plans are. We have been trying to keep them secret. Um, and now we have to decide what we're going to do now that the terrorists, you know, know what we're doing. So we'll have to talk about whether we still want to try and do something with that or whether it's too much of a risk at this point. They, the, uh, the, the, the torch, they're aware of that, the locations and stuff? They're aware that it's at UVA. Okay. We don't know that they know anything about which statue we're going to. We don't know that they know anything about the field that we were supposed to meet up at. If we were going to move forward with this, we would have to choose a different meetup location. Uh, and they would be looking for us if you did. Is law enforcement already cooperating with us on that, or is this something we've not involved in? Now, this is, you're hearing me speak when I ask the question about law enforcement. I'm, I'm going to tell you from my perspective, if we're going to do it at all, I want the cops involved, okay? These guys already turn around like, you know, they, they already turn around and said I drew down on them. They will lie. There's nothing that they won't do. They are operating by the rules of warfare and espionage, and we need the cops on our side 100% of the time with this. Okay. I mean, I have a contact with the police department. Eli does as well. We can speak to them before we do this. Dude. Yeah. If we if, if uh, like I, my suggestion would be, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll follow your lead no matter what, okay, this is your thing, but my, my suggestion would be, let's, let's if, they, if they are, for whatever reason, unwilling or unable to escort us through this, I, I would suggest calling, calling that portion of it off, and then we'll just concentrate on, you know, making tomorrow go off as smoothly as possible. If these guys, if these guys attack us, we're going to hurt about them, that. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and if, and if, and, right. I mean, especially with the... <laughs> not not just in terms of tonight, but in terms of tomorrow, especially with the legal battle we've had to fight, we really want to look like the good guys. Yeah. We right. really have to What's your last conversation with Because them? everything that the media is going to try and do is to reattach the stigma of these old groups like the KKK onto us. Yep. They're going to try and say we're terrorists, blah, blah. They're already trying to do it just because they don't like what we have to say. So the best thing we can do is act like civilized white people, go and speak our mind, and let the rest of Charlottesville, BLM, and the chimp yeah. Yeah. Let them be raised. Let, the idea let behind us be... So there you go, okay? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's the relevant portion of the thing, I, I apologize for the F-bomb. I, I, I had anticipated one might be in there. Sorry for those of you on the live feeds. Um, and so, you know, the idea that the, the statute that they're accusing people of violating is that you went there with fire with the intent to intimidate people into believing that they would be harmed by the fire. OK, now, you know, if that's what people were doing, I'd say, oh, well, that's obviously a criminal act. Uh, go ahead. Lock these criminals up, huh? 
But when you've got it right there, that like the, the, the you know people are like, okay, um, these people are planning on attacking us at our secret event, so we better get the police involved. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that like if you try to if you try to establish that the goal here is to commit a crime, not only do you not have evidence of the criminal intent, which you actually have is evidence of exactly the opposite. Now, as I said to the caller, and, you know, it was kind of like a, a recurring theme, sadly, whenever, you know, you're dealing with anything left wing, the truth has absolutely nothing to do with it, right? I mean, like we said before, you know, you, you see some man say that he's a woman and, and you're like, well, no, that's impossible. And somebody else is like, wow, that's a very special woman. We should We should worship at the altar, you know? And so that's what these people do. And that's why they're dangerous. And that's why you need political power so that you can stop them. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really pretty straightforward. You know, they have political power. You don't. So they run around, you know, attacking people in the street and getting away with it. And then not only do they get away with it, but then they use the courts to go and persecute their political opponents. And I would go so far as to say that, you know, people who run around bragging about abusing the courts— are necessarily suggesting that people go find their justice in other ways. And I dare say that nothing good can possibly come of that. And so if you're not, you know, putting the maximum effort towards actually taking over the government and putting a stop to this, then 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 I would say that um, then then you are not putting an effort towards, you know, preventing this from being the case. And so I'm not saying that you have any necessarily obligation to do that, uh, but the idea that you can do something else and, and claim that you're you're trying to put a stop to this, I'd say, is you know facially preposterous is all I guess I'm trying to say. And so with that, I am going to wrap this up. I'm just going to tell you, uh, you should become a Surreal Politics premium member. Uh, SurrealPolitics.com slash join um, will show you how to become a member for $10 a month. Um, I'll tell you, you know, uh, I'll just tell you. If you use code AGENDA33, I used to be the host of another show. Still am once in a while, you might have gotten. Um, but for those of you who don't know, I do this other show. And for listeners of that show, I put out this code. I said, you sign up with code AGENDA33, and your first three months off will be 33% off. And there's reasons that we do that you might, you might be aware of. Um, so go ahead, sign up, become a member, and then you can join our weekly members-only chat. We do that Wednesdays at 930. And that would be a really great thing for you to do. If you are just so enthusiastic about what I'm doing. And you think that it would be great if, like, I bought advertising and, you know, got more people listening, and then we had people who disagree with me calling in, and then I could, you know, make them look stupid. If you want to do that, then you can give me more money. GiveSendGo.com slash SPM, as in Surreal Politics Media, is a way that you can do that. I'm trying to raise $5,000 a month to finance this thing, and uh, we are well short of that goal. Uh, but you can help me get there. And I'm, I'm talking about, like, I will invest the money back into this thing before I go upgrade my lifestyle, okay? You see this, like, uh, you know, this background behind me, okay? That's not real, okay? That's not real. I'm doing that so that you don't, you don't see. Uh, but, you know, it would be nice if I had, like, a real studio. I used to have one, you might have gathered. And so uh, if you help me go and raise the money, then we'll do those things, and everything will be a lot better than it is now, if I get to be heard by more people. And that is uh, the way to do that is to pay me lots and lots of money or just a little bit. I understand a lot of you don't have a lot of money, but if you have, you know, 10 bucks a month, 
You should absolutely do that part at uh, um, slash join. You should get on my newsletter and you should follow me on social media. Talk Radio God on Twitter, um, Surreal Politics on Telegram. Uh, you can find me on Truth Social, Getter, stuff like that. Parlor's gone. Parlor's gone. But, you know, who knew? <laughs> did anybody notice? Let's face it. If Parlor goes down and nobody's there, you know, it's like a tree falling in the woods. Uh, and so that is that. And we'll be back. I'll be back Wednesday for all of you uh, who are members for our uh, weekly member chat. I'll be back. Uh, some of you know, uh, some of you I have an appointment with Friday. You know what I'm talking about. And of course, we will be back every Monday at 930 for Surreal Politics. Thank you very much for tuning into the show. And we'll be back real soon.